0: The United States government did something that was wrong, deeply, profoundly, morally wrong. It was an outrage to our commitment to integrity and equality for all
1: our citizens. This is President Bill Clinton in the spring of 1997, making a formal apology for the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment that ran from 1932 to 1972. The U.S. Public Health Service study of roughly 400 black men with syphilis enticed enrollment with the offer of free medical exams, free hot meals, and free burials. A few years into the study, penicillin, an incredibly safe and effective treatment for syphilis, became available. But it was deliberately withheld from the men of the Tuskegee study in order to study the natural history or the progression of the ravages of syphilis. While other syphilis sufferers around the country, including Al Capone, the ruthless mobster responsible for dozens of murders, got penicillin and were cured, the public health researchers in charge of the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, as it was formerly known, provided only aspirin and vitamins and watched men die. To the survivors, to the wives and family
0: members, the children and the grandchildren, I say what you know, no power on earth can give you back the lives lost, the pain suffered, the years of internal torment and anguish. What was done cannot be undone, but we can end the silence. We can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye and finally say on behalf of the American people, What the United States government did was shameful, and I am sorry.
2: I think that what President Clinton does here is uh, appropriate, and I think the words are appropriate, and what I would describe as a full-throated apology.
1: This being audio, Thomas, our listeners don't know who you are and what you do, so why don't you introduce yourself?
2: So my name is Thomas Levice, and I am the Dean of the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine at Tulane University.
1: And I'll follow suit. I'm Michael Joyce, and I'm the host of this podcast, Health in All Matters, from the University of Minnesota School of Public
2: Health. I'm just not convinced that the president, or perhaps any president, really has the ability to speak on behalf of the entire nation in this way, unfortunately, um, because, you know, the the history of this country really has been a battle between two visions. Um, One vision is to expand rights and freedoms to every person living in the country. The other vision is to, you know, to make those rights and freedoms available only to a smaller segment of the population and to maintain a hierarchy.
1: There are a lot of carefully chosen and powerful words in that apology, like equality, integrity, and anguish, silence, shamefulness. Is it one of those words or another word that comes to mind when you reflect on the legacy of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment?
2: I I think that it's shameful. It, It was shameful that that experiment happened especially when the scientific knowledge that would be gained from it was so insignificant, you know, in the sense that we already had therapeutics to, to uh, treat syphilis. Um, there was no valid scientific reason to believe that African Americans would respond differently to uh, syphilis or any other disease. But um, I think that the this, this Skiki um, syphilis experiment was, was shameful.
1: So Thomas, in in this podcast, we want to move from Tuskegee to the present, this accelerating pandemic, and explore how racism has impacted public health and how public health has impacted racism. Certainly, the Tuskegee experiment is a devastating example of the latter. So I think we need to clarify a couple of things. First, what you see as the mission of public health. And second, look at what historically has been the relationship between public health and Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Let's go to that first question. As you see it, what is the mission or intent of public health?
2: Uh, In its most fundamental form, I think public health is about health equity. It's about preventing disease and understanding causes of disease. It's about understanding risk and educating people about how best to mitigate those risks. And it's about ensuring that the benefits that we gain from the science that we do in public health are benefits that accrue to all people in the population and therefore equitable uh, in that it should be benefiting everyone.
1: So other than the horrific example of Tuskegee, historically, what's been the relationship between public health and Black, Indigenous, and other people of color
2: yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important question. But I do think that this Tuskegee syphilis study is overburdened, uh, in terms of being viewed as the reason for the mistrust that pervades among African Americans and other groups as well. Um, Tuskegee clearly is an example of an outrageous abuse that occurred, but it's just one example. What I think is more common and, and it's kind of, Fueling this mistrust is contemporary, you know, untrustworthy behavior. So, people go into the healthcare system, they're treated discourteously, and they have a bad experience. And, you know, that happens disproportionately to people that are from marginalized populations. And I think that if we place too much burden on the Tuskegee as a singular example, we create a narrative that, well, everything was fine, and then we did this Tuskegee thing, and now everyone mistrusts us. But that really isn't uh, an accurate narrative. The accurate narrative is there's been a lot of untrustworthy behavior over many years, in fact, centuries. Tuskegee is yet another example of that. And that's why the mistrust exists.
1: One of my colleagues, Kumi Smith, an epidemiologist here at the School of Public Health, brought up an interesting point. She said, quote, the United States has chronically underserved communities of color and then turned right around and overscrutinized their health, especially African Americans. What do you think about that quote?
2: I think that's exactly right, you know, And when you look at where we are now um, in the COVID-19 pandemic, sort of about we're about what eight, 10 months into this pandemic. But as the pandemic began to really rage in this country, there were delays in access to testing, right, and those uh, delays were particularly acute in the black communities of this country. And now as we are working towards uh, development of a vaccine and the surveys are showing tremendous mistrust of this vaccine, and there's a lot of talk about kind of how will we prioritize who gets the vaccine first. And there's a lot of talk about African-Americans and other uh, communities that have been disproportionately impacted getting the vaccine first, which is a logical way to think about this. But it also feeds into a narrative that generates additional mistrust because then the perspective is when we were trying to find out who had the disease and we needed testing, they didn't come into our communities and test us. But now that you have a new vaccine that you want to deploy and you still don't really know how safe and effective it's going to be, you want us to be first in line to get it.
1: So what has changed and what has not changed when it comes to public health as seen through the lens of race and racism?
2: So what hasn't changed is that when these sorts of events occur, in this case a pandemic, that African-Americans are disproportionately impacted, right? What has changed, however, is that especially among health professionals, I think there is more of a awareness that... Race plays an important role in in, uh, in, in the health care that we produce, that, that we provide. We are looking and expecting that there will be disparities and we're attuned to it and we understand that they exist. I do think that increasingly people are moving away from the narrative that racial differences in health are about biological or genetic differences. I do still hear that every now and then, but uh, I'm hearing that less. And I think we are moving towards a a more sophisticated, nuanced understanding of why the disparities exist.
0: Um, I really firmly believe in the, quote, a problem well-framed is a problem half-solved.
1: This is Dr. Lamar Hasbrook. He's a Chicago-based physician who's worked in public health at the local, state, federal, and international levels in both the private and public sectors.
0: And so we framed it from the easy part in documenting, yes, we've studied the health gaps. We've studied gaps in everything from health expectancy to mortality, morbidity, prevent- preventable hospitalization, et cetera. We've done a great job on that for probably, you know, three or four decades. Kicked that box. Now, I think public health as a field has shifted to looking at social determinants of health. And we're really trying to look at some of the drivers or some of the roots of some of those health inequities. Um, But I think that this is not rocket science. You know, I think that what we need to do is consult the real experts. And when I say real experts, I really mean the community members. At some point, you gotta just go to the communities and get them involved in a real equitable way. So there's involvement, there's partnership, their shared decision-making, shared ownership, and really the uncovering of the real next wave of knowledge, which is why is it that assuming you have access, assuming you have understanding, assuming you have awareness to these health differentials, what's the hangup? What's, you know, what is the secret sauce to getting you to move from this behavior to that behavior?
1: I'm guessing we don't know the secret sauce, right? But what are some of those hangups?
0: Give you just a brief example. I was at the AMA and I got a chance to be a um, a senior strategist on a project looking at hypertension uh, among African-American men.
1: The AMA being the American Medical Association and hypertension being high blood pressure.
0: And what we learned is that in terms of the awareness level, uh, I do have this diagnosis. When you compare them to white men, for instance, it's the same. It's very high. 80, 85, 90 percent of folks who have hypertension know they have it. In terms of being on a medicine, it's very high. It's about 80, 85 percent there. But when it comes to adherence
1: to the medication,
0: taking it as regularly as you should, that's where it drops
1: off. That is to say the adherence, or compliance as it's sometimes called, was lower for the African-American men. So the question is, why would a
0: population that knows about their disease, has access to health care, has been prescribed medication... What is the problem or the conundrum in the adherence part of it? And so that's where you have to go to that layer and you have to really get those patients involved and ask them, what is it? Is it money? Is it side effects? Is it something cultural? So, so that's an example of how we need to get down to the next level of really understanding uh, the roots of the roots, as I put it.
1: In the case of uh, high blood pressure in African-American men, did you find an answer to that question? We found there were some differences in really
0: understanding. So this brings in the question of health literacy. Yes, you diagnosed me. Yes, you've given me a prescription. Yes, you've talked to me about it. But did I really get all my questions answered? Um, Getting back to Tuskegee, do I really trust you that you have my best interest involved? So those are the types of things where you get those deeper, more um, nuanced answers that can then help you to really solve some of these problems.
1: Well, let's take another problem, an ongoing challenge, COVID-19 and vaccination. Now, I realize vaccination on its own won't solve the pandemic. And I realize the effectiveness of the vaccine is a big unknown. But let's say we do get one next year. I'm very interested in the barriers to reaching people of color when it comes to the vaccine question.
0: I am as well. And I have actually written an op-ed piece that said a vaccine won't save us for a couple of reasons. One, folks don't like vaccines. Only four in 10 Americans even avail themselves of vaccines. And when we had the last pandemic, H1N1, only three out of 10 availed themselves and they were in high risk group. So we don't like vaccines as a community. Um, So that's why it's not going to save us. The other reason is the trust issue. And this harkens all the way back to Tuskegee, the other question that you asked earlier. There's a healthy uh, measure of distrust. Um, And when you talk about developing a vaccine at Warp speed. Um, I think that if you were to get your car serviced at a mechanic and he was to say, "I'm going to do it. I'm going to fix your brakes at warp speed," you might, you know, be a little bit hesitant.
1: Yeah, time is one thing, and money is another. The National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, the NIMDH, it's just one of 27 centers under the umbrella of the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, and I guess. The budget for the NIMDH was around 335 million this past year. That's just 0.8 percent of the total NIH budget, which this year was around 42 billion. So, is that an adequate investment?
0: And you know, I, li- I like the way you frame the question as an investment because I would say public health champions and public health practitioners all over the world would say there should be an ethical imperative. There should be a social contract with the community it says, you know, we value health and the health of everyone. And so I would say when you're looking at the cost conundrum, what we've learned over the years and many decades is that better, more equitable health leads to stable, healthy, more vibrant communities and economically uh, thriving communities. So at the end of the day, when you look at the ROI, typically when you're investing in public health, there's a huge ROI.
1: Yeah. ROI being return on investment.
0: Yes, but when you divest or underfund it, what we see is there's a huge cost because all the preventable things upstream could have been dealt with. And now we got to deal with them in the healthcare, um, sector and public health and healthcare are different. Um, they overlap, but it, it can be looked at almost as a continuum. And we'd rather spend the, the 18%, 20% of the GDP on healthcare now rather than invest more wisely in the upstream preventive and public health and population health measures. And so it really can be looked at as an investment, and my strong opinion is that it's a a huge underinvestment at this point.
1: Upstream prevention or focusing on the root causes of our health problems, not treating them once they've developed, is one of the key distinctions between public health, which is not well-funded in this country, and our rescue-oriented medical industrial complex, which is funded to the extreme. If you think about it, two things jump out. First, the funding priorities seem backward. Second, many folks don't have a clear sense of what public health is or does.
3: There's different ways that people may look at it. Some people are just like, okay, yeah, outbreaks. I get that part.
1: Dr. Ngazi Azike is the director of the Illinois Department of Health.
3: But I think there's so much more outside of that that people don't appreciate. And the role of public health is expanding as we think about how to have people achieve their optimal health, that it's not just preventing outbreaks and it's not just making sure there's access to. you know, traditional medical or mental health care, but it's actually being able to ensure that the barriers to the care uh, are worked on. And so trying to break up the foundations of racism that make people's ability to achieve their optimal health make it more difficult, that's actually the very hard foundational work that public health is starting to delve into. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Public health is always gonna be right alongside that movement. Uh, We're happy to lead, we're happy to partner, we're great collaborators. So I think we're gonna see some exciting changes in the coming years.
1: And as we've reported before, COVID-19 is not only disproportionately impacting communities of color, it's also exposing both vulnerabilities and opportunities in our public health approach.
3: Right now, COVID, COVID, COVID. And so funds are being allocated for things, obviously new things. And so you realize in the heat of the moment, wow, there are so many things that the public health department is missing. We really don't have enough epidemiologists we don't have enough statisticians. So even the ability to mine all of our data to be able to put it out for, for the public, right now, you know, the money is there to try to do a lot of these things. But as we have seen in other situations, other emergencies, as we get a little bit away from it, you put COVID in the rearview mirror, then they start pulling away the money that you would be using to kind of rebuild the foundation, to, to restore or create A public health department that would be ready in advance instead of trying to struggle and get things together in response.
1: And this brings up the topic of solutions. As with every episode, we turn to the people you just heard from and ask them what steps need to be taken now. In this case, how can public health be part of the solution when it comes to racism? Not part of the problem as it was with Tuskegee. What is doable and will have measurable impact? Here's Thomas Laviste who opened this episode.
2: We haven't resolved the problem yet, and we certainly do still have the disparities. I think for those of us in academic public health, you know, I think that there is more for us to do as well. Uh, at this point, it is fundamental is a fundamental core competency of being a public health professional to have an understanding of health equity and why why we have these inequities. I I don't think you are competent to work in public health if you haven't been trained to understand about health, health equity. And I think it's unacceptable that any school of public health even be accredited if they're not ensuring that everyone who goes through that training understands it. And I think in the 21st century, if we haven't moved the health equity course at our schools from the rank of the elective courses and into our core curriculum, I think that we're doing our students a disservice because they're not going to be prepared to work in public health in the 21st century.
3: I think I would start at the elementary or high school level implementing programs that build the pipeline for the public health workforce, where we're creating internships and externships and spend the day at the public health department with our our middle schoolers to expose them to all the myriad paths and, and routes that encompass public health to build that interest in it so that people ten years down the line are thinking no i want to be I want to go into public health, I want to be a public health leader. You know public health often works in the shadows. I think we've been put in front now, and so we need to leverage that to really build up that pipeline and build that diverse workforce that is so key to making sure that policies and practices and and grants that we put out are going to improve the situation of all people in our state.
0: There's a lot of things that we can do better. Um, It starts, I think, with partnering with the communities that are affected. I think it starts with better advocacy. Um, uh, elected officials and administrators need to address the compensation issue for public health practitioners. They need to address the resource allocation issues. And then I think another thing that we're not doing well in looking in the mirror is we're not smartly partnering with our sister sector, uh, which I would call healthcare and healthcare delivery. And so I think if we can partner with them and understand there's a continuum from what happens in the neighborhood, in the home, in the community to what ultimately shows up in the physician's office. If we can partner better there so it's a continuum and there's not kind of two different uh, sectors, independently acting sectors, I think we could do better there as well. In other words, public health has to have a renaissance moment.
1: This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. You can subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. That really does help us reach more people. We particularly want to reach out to young people and their teachers because we believe you are a very important part of the solution. So check out our sample discussion questions for high school and college students. You can download them and find some related resources on our website at sph.umn.edu. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.